Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. My simple solution to the problem was remove people from the scene and help them feel safer. In response to attacks against Asian Americans, Maddie Park raised over $250,000 to donate cab rides to the Asian community. There is so much more work to be done. We really need to come together and tackle this issue as a community. Support the Asian community. Learn how at lovehasnolabels.com. Brought to you by Love Has No Labels and the Ad Council. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. It's the Breakfast Club, the world's most dangerous morning show. Hey! Angela E is kind of like the big sister that always pokes you in the forehead. <laughs> That's not how it goes? That's not how anything goes. Yimby's really like a robot. One of the best DJs ever. Believe that. Charlamagne is the wild card. And I'm about to give somebody the credit they deserve for being stupid. I know, that's right. <laughs> what is wrong with you? <laughs> Listen to The Breakfast Club weekday mornings from 6 to 10 on 106.7 The Beat. Columbus is real hip-hop and R&B. Hi, I'm Pete Buttigieg, and this is The Deciding Decade. A few weeks ago, we spoke with director John Chu about the importance of diverse representation in film. We discussed why it's so significant for younger generations to see themselves in the images and the stories before them. There's a parallel conversation to be had about what kids growing up and learning about the world are reading as they start diving into books. Are there characters who have similar backgrounds, characteristics, and experiences to them? Do they see their families and neighborhoods reflected in what they read? In short, do children of every background see themselves on the page? Too often, as you can imagine, the answer is no. But my next guest, part of our series of conversations with youth leaders, is a next-generation advocate who has already done a lot to change that. Marley Dias is a 15-year-old activist and author. In November 2015, she launched the hashtag ThousandBlackGirlBooks drive with the goal of collecting a thousand books featuring black female protagonists. She not only collected and delivered 1,600 books within that first year, but has also collected over 12,000 to date. Since then, she has served as an editor-in-residence at L.com, published a book called Marley Dias Gets It Done and So Can You, was named a Forbes 30 Under 30 list for media and Time's 25 Most Influential Teens and was a speaker at the first night of this year's Democratic National Convention. She's also an executive producer for and host of Netflix's Bookmarks series, which features children's books written by Black authors about the Black experience. And each episode shows the books read aloud by Black leaders and activists. Welcome, Marley. It's so good to have you with us today. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate you joining and excited for the conversation that we're going to have. I'm especially interested in learning more about your great work with the book drive and other projects. But first, I want to learn a little more about 
your background. I understand that you grew up with a love of reading. And I was curious what things you read as you were growing up that had the biggest impact on you and sparked that love of reading for you. I'm only 15, so I don't have, you know, a long history ahead of me or behind me, but uh, I've always been a lifelong reader. My mom is a sociologist, and even though she doesn't necessarily love to read, she's done research and understands the importance of making sure that books and curiosity is involved in every household and in every family. My dad's kind of like a magazine guy, so I they would always, you know, push me to do something that they wish they had done as a kid, and I think it really helped in the development of my vocabulary, my understanding of my sense of self and of other people. And one book that I uh, really motivated me not only to start the 1000 Black Girl Books campaign, but to hopefully read more and to encourage more kids uh, to read is Brown Girl Dreaming by Jacqueline Woodson. She uh, is one of the most prolific Black authors of all time. Uh, she's now, uh, I consider her a family friend after five years of 1000 Black Girl Books, but um, it's actually a, a memoir about her life written in verse. And I had never felt that there was really a story about kind of the people that were the in-between, the teacher's daughters, the, the bus driver's daughters, the people that don't necessarily stand out as always needing help, but the people that sometimes need the most, that they're not the most uh, privileged or resource, but they're not the least, um, and kind of struggling with feeling like it's hard to ask for help or hard to feel like you're exceptional, but not to feel like you're terrible. Um, and I really love that book. And I think it helped me a lot in my own personal confidence and uh, giving it to other kids to read. So you described your your upbringing and your parents as a big influence on your reading life. And am I right that it was a conversation with your mother that helped lead to you launching the Thousand Black Girl Books Initiative? Yes, it was. I was sitting in a diner with my mom. We used to go to the diner every single weekend in elementary school and middle school. And she asked me uh, when I was in sixth grade what I wish I could have changed about my elementary school experience. And I told her that I really liked to read and I thought my teachers did a great job of like having us read interesting books, but a lot of them did not have black girls as the main character. Hmm. And my fifth grade year, I read three books, all of which had white boys and their dogs as the main character. <laughs> so I read Old Yeller, I read Where the Red Fern Grows, and I read the Shiloh series, all about hunting dogs and a blonde-haired, blue-eyed white boy playing hmm. with them. So as much as I like to read, I thought that there was an issue with that, you know, kind of yeah. repeated pattern, and she encouraged me to do something about it. And how was that received when you were uh, talking with classmates or teachers or others who were introducing these books to you? Did they see the issue right away or did you feel like you had to be kind of explaining and educating those around you on why you know, there, there's more to childhood than white kids with their dogs? It was difficult for me. It really was because I was nervous that my teacher would have thought that I didn't believe in his teaching or hmm. his style of teaching. But um, I actually didn't really even talk to him about it when I launched the campaign because I was afraid that he would hate me or like once it started to go viral that he would be upset. But talking to him uh, within those six months where it started to grow, he was very happy that, you know, someone was willing to openly challenge something that he really thought was great. And I think it really helped my teachers and my school develop a new understanding. But for a lot of kids who may have uh, live in low income households or have less resources, and go to our public libraries, they don't necessarily know what they don't have. Mm. So if they are not having parents that are actively buying them diverse books, they're not going to know that stories about Black girls exist, that we can hear about Black people's experiences other than the civil rights movement or an enslavement story. Um, and I think it was super interesting to realize that so many people are open to that idea, but they don't know where these books exist. They have never read them. They don't think that they're out there. And they normally see the white narrative as a traditional narrative. Uh, so tell us about the process now. You, uh, wh Where do you go as you decide that you want to collect these books? Are you, are you rooting around the shelves at home? Are you Googling 
black girls leading in books on online or you're pouring through the library to take us through that process? So the first thing I really had to do after I kind of lodged that complaint with my mom is I had to understand if it, this was just my school's problem or if it was a like American school problem or a world school problem. Um, and kind of through more research and my mom making me sit and watch documentaries and read graphs and all these things, we understand that it's an issue that exists um, on a nationwide and kind of global basis of not having diversity within books uh, and particularly having mainly white characters or animals before having stories of Latinx people, black people, LGBTQ people, um, and it's kind of a repeated issue. So the first thing I had to do was know that it's not just my problem, but it's actually a problem that can concern so many other students. Yeah. So after doing that, I used to pose with my mom and take pictures with the black girl books that I had in my home. And I would tell her, please donate to, and then we have a location where people can donate books. And it was super slow at the beginning, but then I had some more media opportunities and I finally got to mm. talk and introduce myself to new people. And that's when books started to come in and really floor uh, and cover the floors of our office building and stack up. What did you find as you started going through all of these titles that were coming your way? Were there patterns that surprised you? Yes, there's one very unique pattern that uh, it kind of upset me a lot is that a, a lot of these books are published by independent authors or from indie uh, or independent book publishing houses. And that we noticed that when you look at the people that are really doing the work to prioritize diversity, it's normally people making books in their houses. Hmm. And if you are an independent or smaller book publisher, you are less likely to end up in curriculums because a lot of the times school districts or school boards will have partnerships with a specific company. So let's say it's a really, really big publishing company. They're more likely to get all of their books from one publishing house. So they're not going to the people that sell books in their trunk or hmm. the people that are on page 30 of uh, a list of books to buy. So um, it's really difficult and, and frustrating to see that these people that are really putting in the work to make sure that Black girl stories are out there uh, don't get the credit or publicity as many other authors. So who are your best partners in, in changing that? You've got these fantastic authors generating wonderful books and, and literature. Who do you think is in the best position to, uh, to fill in that gap and make sure these books reach a wider audience and get onto that, that shelf in the school library or the public library or the classroom? Yeah, uh, there's been really three great organizations that have helped me in this work is Scholastic, which my book mm. is published with. And it was a tough decision to figure out who I wanted to publish a book with, because it was not only about the experience of me, you know, having a book and being able to secure things that I was interested in and traveling, but also about how can I leave a mark that exists beyond, you know, an interview, which I would normally do something that will exist long, long, long after all these things. Um, and one way we were really able to incorporate and to prioritize independent stories was in the back of my book, there's a list of 500 books where Black girls are the main characters. So it's kind of like a scavenger hunt to find more and to find more. Um, and most of these books are not published by Scholastic. So they're using their platform and putting me out there in order to promote so many other authors that they are not necessarily reaping the benefits of putting their name out there. Um, and I'd say the second one is the American Library Association and all of those chapters kind of count as my third one. Librarians are the best. They're actually, they don't get nearly enough credit in this country and they are so supportive of me online and they can continue to show my interviews, my books, and to listen to the things that I recommend. And I feel like I really have a space in their classrooms that makes me super happy.
My name is Ariel. I moved to the U.S. at 19. I spoke no English and I struggled finding job opportunities. Everything I have, I owe to the Adult Literacy Center and getting my high school diploma at age 22. It was an honor helping you achieve your greatness. Now you're helping others achieve theirs. It inspires me. When you graduate, they graduate. Find free and supportive adult education centers near you at finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. Hey, it's Zuko and Kayla from The Wake Up Call. Enjoy your podcast, and when you're done, don't forget about us. We have a radio show. We try to bring a smile to your face every morning. We also talk to some of the hottest country stars of today, and we like to share some good news with That's What I Like. Because Lord knows that's hard to find. When you're done podcasting your podcast, listen to us at 92.3 WCOL. Set your preset on your radio right now, and don't forget you can listen to us online on the iHeartRadio app. It sounds like you're not only an ambassador for representation in the publishing world, but you're an ambassador for reading among your peers. Uh, how do your classmates and, and peers uh, think about what you're doing and, and how's it been received? So that's a, that's a tough question because I think there's definitely a mix uh, of, of responses. A lot of the times because I have a larger social media following and they don't see me having to count books by hand or do Excel spreadsheets, putting people's titles and putting their names in. Uh, taking pictures for hours and hours at a time, you know, meeting 800 people, not now, but obviously, but like, you know, standing in long lines, um, people don't always see that. And they get to see when you meet a famous person or when you get to travel to a country or uh, when you get your name and a headline of something, or when you get a Netflix show and they don't understand uh, always kind of the, the harder work that it takes and how I am. A lot of the times when I enter a space, I'm the youngest, I'm the first, I'm the only and how that can definitely be an intimidating experience for me. Um, nothing I nothing I do necessarily just comes naturally to me. That I I obviously have uh, some abilities that other people don't have when it comes to the way I speak or the success of my campaign. But I still have to put in so much work to keep these things alive and to keep this dream of the importance of literacy, the importance of change making uh, within my life and my community. So for some people, they're super super proud and they understand that. Maybe this is why she didn't come to this, or maybe this is why she missed out on that. Um, but other people just see it as, oh, she got famous for this thing, and now she gets to travel and do all these amazing things. But um, I think it's it's more of the positives than the negatives, but the negatives don't bother me too much. I got to tell you, this doesn't sound wildly different than the experience of uh, becoming visible when you run for office. <laughs> I wonder if uh, you ever decided to do that, you'd have a, a huge head start. So tell me, what are the biggest things you think are different for someone who sees themselves on the page? A, a black girl, for example, opening up a, a book where the, the protagonist is, is a black girl. How does she see herself differently? How does she see the text differently? In other words, how do you explain why this matters so much? So I get this question all the time from teachers and actually from a lot of students. Uh, and I think one of the reasons that it helps build confidence, um, many white people may see it as a given to feel like, oh, I know all the experiences of what happened in Europe and what happened from these time periods to people that look like me. And it feels like uh, something that they don't have to fight for or necessarily account for or check out and make sure. Um, and the reason why we don't necessarily have like a white history month and things of that sort is because it's a given within this country that white history is told. Um, so I think for a lot of people, I always want to make sure that they understand that their narratives are not something that necessarily uh, has ever been put under the, like in the back burner or we'll just have to save it for this time. That 
um, the experiences, the culture, the, the, the things that they love and prioritize are put at the front. And it can help so many young Black people to feel like, oh my gosh, my hair is cool. Or mm. some person has said this thing to me and now I hear it's happening in a book and I know I'm not alone in that struggle. Or hearing that um, their accomplishments and goals are achievable because a young Black person did it too. Or they see Black astronauts, they see Black archaeologists. Um, and although race is not everything, and I get that comment a lot too, is that why does race matter? But it does affect the way we see the world. And it does affect our experiences and our access. And by showing to kids that you have the potential to be great, uh, including your race, not regardless of your race, uh, you can do amazing things. You know, uh, I saw you once describe your campaign in a way I thought was really interesting and important. In your words, you said that the campaign is about creating space for all rather than pushing one group out. And that really got my attention because I think you know, when it comes to struggles for racial equity and representation, there is often a sense of pushback among people, usually white people, who feel like they have something to lose in a context of, of greater equality. And uh, I wonder what you say to people who seem to have this, this fear that something is somehow being taken away from them when everyone is fully represented. Have you encountered that? And, and what other ways have you found for, for dealing with that? I definitely have encountered that or witnessed other activists or people I care about encounter that. And it definitely kind of deeply frustrates me that I feel as though if you have an issue with someone else gaining rights or gaining equity or the ability, that is a, a fundamental and ethical problem that you have. Mm. That's not the problem <laughs> of anybody else. Uh, yeah. And it, and when it comes to, the, especially in my library, where I had five books I read in one year that had um, white boys as the main character, that's simply taking out two and adding in two more diverse books. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not necessarily saying that we are never going to learn about white people's experiences. Right. We're never going to learn about boys' experiences, but we're going to add some more. We're going to mix it up. We're going to include people who are what we normally see and people that we don't normally see. Um, and I think people need to understand that there is always a potential for change and that we don't need to see things as good or as bad, but rather as new um, and exciting. And I think a lot of people are not interested in the potential for greatness for all. And uh, people need to lose that fear and to understand that there's so much that can be gained from understanding and listening to other people and not much to lose from that experience. So we're in an extraordinary moment in uh, American history, a black woman for the first time ever. Matter of fact, the first time a woman ever, as well as a black woman, as well as a, 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 an American of South Asian descent, has been elected vice president of the United States. What, uh, what did that mean to you? It meant a lot to me, and I think it's super exciting because, as she said in um, her speech, that this is an opportunity for so many other young girls to see themselves and, and feel really empowered and motivated to be great and to achieve things that no one else has done. I have spent a lot of time being the first and youngest, and I can imagine the fears that she may have had, mm -hmm. um, and, and not even to that level, uh, definitely not of being vice president but, uh, or vice president-elect, but I, I definitely understand the, the bravery that she's taken and the steps that she's really uh, kind of had to do that so many people have had uh, negative and adverse feelings about. Uh, and it means a lot to me. It's super cool. It, it's really amazing to think that now that I'm a teenager and this didn't happen like when I was um, four or five when Obama mm. was elected, that I now can remember this moment and see the election and be a part of this and to encourage my parents to vote and to help them educate themselves uh, is something that's super awesome. Because now that I'm a teenager, this will stay with me rather than when I was super, super young and I didn't know the significance of some of the historical events that happened. So in your book, Marley Dias Gets It Done, 
you offer tips for paying it forward. And uh, the book shows young people things they can do to galvanize their own power for the common good. Uh, now, uh, I'm I'm what you would call an elder millennial. I'm in the older uh, range of that age group. I'm guessing a lot of our listeners are probably a little bit older than you. Um, but I'm curious, what do you recommend to us? How can all of us do something with our strengths to make positive change? I think one thing you can do, uh, and it's simple for everybody, is, is to learn to listen and really listen to learn. Um, mm. My mom always says that to me, that it's super important to take a second to understand that Okay, I may think I know so much about one thing, but what new perspectives can I be a part of? How can I be that person that someone says, this person supported me and now I'm able to do great things. They listened to me even when I was struggling uh, and to try our best to show empathy and compassion for others. Um, I, I always believe that um, being hopeful and being optimistic is something that's super important. And I find that especially adults that have more experience of watching things go really well and go really bad mm. are not always as optimistic. And I feel like I've seen things go really well and really bad and, and still try my best to be optimistic. So uh, sharing in that hope and, and spreading optimism, whether that's on social media and trying your best to educate others about the potential for great things to happen um, and to always kind of look to the horizon that there is potential for greatness in everyday life and in everyday people. That's really good advice. What, what are your greatest sources of optimism and, and, and hope? How do you replenish that well when you need to find more reasons to feel good about the future? Well, I, I think one of the, the great op moments of optimism for me is when adults invite me to come talk about how I feel. I think for a lot of teenagers, they feel like adults don't understand. They lack the compassion for teenage curiosity or wild ideas or tenacity. Um, and when I get opportunities to have conversations with adults, it means a lot to me uh, because I, I don't always like that feeling that I am only going to be able to appeal to one audience or that there's only one type of person that's going to want to hear me speak. But um, it's really awesome when I get those chances. And I hope that as I grow older and I become a person that can vote and can be civically engaged in new ways that these kind of platforms and conversations continue to grow for me and other young people. So this podcast is called The Deciding Decade because I like thinking about what the 2020s are going to be like, what it would mean for them to go well or for them to go poorly, and what's at stake when we get to the year 2030. And we're looking back on 2020 and everything that's gone between and what, what it would take to believe that that has set our country and, and our planet on a better course. So I'm wondering, you know, the year 2030, you'll be about 25 years old. Uh, where do you hope to be then? And what do you think it would take for us to be able to uh, have a conversation in 2030, looking back on on the decade that started in 2020, and to believe that that decade set us up for a better future? Well, I think the first thing we have to do, although it's not really related to to my campaign, is to protect the environment and to make sure that we have an earth that still works and, and can inhabit all these people by 2030. I'm really concerned about that. And I know some other young activists that exist in the climate space. And there's a lot of pressure um, to make sure that they can do things that can help the environment and to protect our world. We don't get another copy. We don't get a replacement. It's not like, you know, where I do stuff with books, where if a book gets a coffee stain on it, I could just buy another book. It's not the same with climate activism. So I want to make sure that those things are protected. And I, I think a huge thing that's really important is investing in public education and public educators. I have gone to public school my whole life. And uh, I think a lot of people may see me as someone that has greatly benefited from the public school system, which I have, but I am not the experience, nor am I the metric of so many other kids. Uh, going to online school is super hard for me. And the reason why I am 
unnecessarily above average or more intelligent is through the investment of my parents, not through the investment of my schools. Um, And I think it's super important that we prioritize helping to mobilize kids to be curious, to invest in their passions at a young age and not wait until they grow up to pursue their interests or their dreams. Uh, Because these things can happen now and the earlier they happen, the more time for mistakes, the more time to correct and not feeling like you waited too long to try something you really cared about. I'm definitely gonna hold in mind what Marley said, learn to listen and listen to learn. The decade ahead will benefit hugely if we can all work and live based on that mantra. And this is a good time especially to listen to the wisdom of younger generations. Marley mentioned the power of what happens when adults ask her to join conversations, and there could be a lot more of that. What we must not do is make young advocates and activists feel like they're shouting into a void. They have too much at stake and they have too much wisdom to offer for us to push them into cynicism by not allowing them to be heard enough. There's no doubt that when they are heard, we're all better off for it. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. My simple solution to the problem was remove people from the scene and help them feel safer. In response to attacks against Asian Americans, Maddie Park raised over $250,000 to donate cab rides to the Asian community. There is so much more work to be done. We really need to come together and tackle this issue as a community. Support the Asian community. Learn how at lovehasnolabels.com. Brought to you by Love Has No Labels and the Ad Council.